0: Don Mockholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 74, for the week of June 2nd, 2021. The related website for this podcast is DonMockholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, June 2nd, the moon is about half full in the morning sky. Over the next week, the moon will decrease in brightness and size, And by the end of the week, Tuesday, June 8th, the moon will be a slim and thin crescent in the morning sky. New moon and an annular solar eclipse are on Thursday, June 10th at 1052 Universal Time. Those living in the southern hemisphere are favored for seeing the thin lunar crescent just before new moon on June 10th. The Northern Hemisphere is favored for picking up the thin lunar crescent in the evening sky in the night or two after new moon on June 10th. On Thursday, June 10th, we have an annular solar eclipse where the moon passes in front of the sun, but the moon is not large enough to completely cover the sun. At the right time and at the right place, you may see the moon appearing inside the sun with a ring of sun around the dark moon. It is unsafe to view such an eclipse without a filter or using the pinhole projection method. The path of totality for this eclipse, where it will be annular and the moon will be somewhere inside the sun, not necessarily centered, involves eastern Canada, western Greenland, the North Pole, and northeastern Russia. A much wider area will see a partial eclipse where the moon takes at least a small bite out of the sun. Northern Europe and most of northern Asia will see a partial eclipse. And the northeastern United States sunrise may look a bit odd with a crescent or partially obscured sun rising in the east. Residents of Minnesota and North Dakota will not see the annular phase because that will be done by time the sun rises. But the eclipsed sun will be below the horizon in the hour before sunrise, which might make for an unusual pre-dawn twilight. Those in central, southern, and western United States will see nothing. The eclipse will be over by sunrise on Thursday, June 10th. Those in South America, Australia, Africa, Southern Europe, and Southern Asia will also see nothing. But for those in the Western Hemisphere eclipse region, prepare for this next Wednesday, June 9th, before going to bed and get up early to see an unusual sunrise. This is a good week for observing not only the deep sky objects, but the planets. Mercury and Venus and distant Mars are in the evening sky. Saturn rises around midnight. This is followed by Jupiter an hour later and Neptune an hour after that. Finally, the planet Uranus rises shortly before astronomical twilight. This is a good week to get out and see all the major planets in one night. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, June 2nd, through Tuesday, June 8th? This week we have six zones. All you need to know is your latitude. North of 50 degrees north, the ISS will not be in your sky this week. In fact, you won't see it for the whole month of June. Between 20 and 50 degrees north, the ISS will be in your evening sky for at least part of the week. Those in the northern part of this zone, between about 35 through 50 degrees, will have it in your evening sky for only the first few days of this week. From 5 to 20 degrees north, the International Space Station will be in your evening sky for the second part of the week. From 30 degrees south to 5 degrees north, the ISS will not be visible at all this week. From 40 to 30 degrees south, we're talking Australia, much of Africa and parts of South America, no ISS this week. From 55 to 40 degrees south, the ISS will be in your morning sky all week, sometimes twice per night. To determine where it will be in your sky, not only the International Space Station, but numerous satellites, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. A periodic comet is now visible in our morning sky, slowly heading south and passing between Jupiter and Saturn this week. It rises shortly after midnight and is at about magnitude 11. The northern hemisphere can see it through the month of June until it disappears into the southern horizon. The southern hemisphere can see it for the next few months. This comet is 7P-slash-Pons-Winnecke. It was discovered twice first by Pons of France in 1819. It was suspected of being a periodic comet, but was missed on the next few returns. It was discovered 40 years later by Wenicky of Germany, who thought it was a new comet. Orbital calculations showed that this was the same comet discovered by Pons in 1819. It was then renamed com- Comet pons wenicky The orbit of this comet, 7p, has changed frequently, being pulled around by the planet Jupiter. Presently, its perihelion distance, the distance closest to the Sun, is 1.234 astronomical units, with an astronomical unit being the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. And it takes 6.3 years to orbit the Sun once. It reached its closest point to the sun last week and is presently approaching the Earth while it slowly recedes from the sun. It's presently about magnitude 11. This is not visible in binoculars, but a modest telescope should show it under good conditions. Comet 7 p pons winneke is plotted on podcast 74, map 3, And the positions of the comets for each day, that is, the right ascension and declination, are on podcast 74, Comet Positions. Now for the astral class. Let's talk about light pollution. In the ideal world, the sky would be dark and astronomical objects would show maximum contrast. As I started comet hunting in 1975, I learned about some of the natural light pollution sources. First, there is twilight, important to the comet hunter since we sweep the sky near the sun. Second, there is zodiacal light, a faint glow along the ecliptic brightest near the sun, and tailing off as one moves away from the sun. Third, there is natural sky glow, caused when atoms in our atmosphere recombine after nightfall. And emit a small amount of light. And fourth, we have moonlight, which varies throughout the month. Nothing can be done about those unless you want to filter out natural night glow. Next is what I call light trespass your neighbor leaves their outdoor lights on, and it illuminates your telescope and the surrounding area. Or you hold a public star party at the shopping center parking lot and your telescope is parked under a bright light. Sure, your, your guests can see you and your telescope and they understand what's going on, but none of you can get dark adapted and you have difficulty seeing anything in the telescope. One night in Koufax, California, for one of the Christmas events, I set up my telescope under a streetlight and had trouble even seeing Jupiter through the telescope. Less severe is the neighbor a half a mile away at an otherwise dark site who runs their porch light all night long. This can be ir- irritating, but there are a couple of solutions. Place something between you and the light or move your telescope to the other side of your house or garage or whatever it takes to block the light. Or invite your neighbor over for an evening of astronomy and halfway through point out their porch light and how much better it would be if they would turn it off or put it on a light sensor, which would turn it on only when motion is detected, then turns it off after a minute. My backyard... In Concord, California, had a street light in front of our house in my southeast, and one in the court behind my house in my western sky. By picking up and moving my telescope, I could usually find a place where I did not have the light shining directly on me in my telescope. Years later, in Koufax, California, for my roll-off roof observatory. I had portable sheets of plywood I could move around to block the light and wind. A different and new type of light pollution is caused by artificial satellites. Since 1957, satellites have been orbiting the Earth, and visually they have not caused much of a problem. However, astrophotographers and those who image the night sky, taking time exposures through all types of telescopes and lenses, even wide-field lenses, find that the streaks left by a satellite across the image to be an annoyance. With the recent addition of satellite constellations, large numbers of small satellites covering the sky, this annoyance has sometimes turned into something more serious. In the worst-case scenarios, the satellite trails can obscure important data in the images and make them useless. The Starlink system has the majority of these satellites, but there will be more from other groups over the next few years. Solutions are few, and once a satellite is up, it may not come down for decades. There seems to be little that can be done about it. Now for the type of light pollution that people think about when they talk about light pollution. Artificial light, which lights up the sky at night, turning the dark sky background, more technically the foreground, into various shades of gray. Here's a simple question, not not a trick question. Is it easier to see a faint galaxy against a black background or against a gray background? Well, a black background. Even bright planets and bright stars look better with a dark background. Astronomers have noticed artificial light pollution from day one, but not much was done in an organized fashion until the creation of the International Dark Sky Organization. Its website is www.darksky.org. This site has tons of resources for combating light pollution. One of the main problems that they have faced is that people, well, the average person, has never given light pollution a second thought, thinking the more light, the better. At some of our dark sky public star parties held in the Sierras, we would get occasionally guests of all ages who have never seen the Milky Way before. They did not know what they were missing. It began, I believe, with San Diego because Mount Palomar is not far away. Solutions were found with city and county governments which were win-win, a win for both sides. For example, when light is directed downward, less light is needed to illuminate for whatever purpose, and less light gets thrown upward into the sky. Light pollution ordinances have been passed by legislative bodies around the world. Cities, counties, and states have adopted a few simple rules to prohibit the expansion of light pollution. We lived in San Jose until 1990. In 1988, we bought property in Colfax, in the foothills of Northern California, small town. Fewer than 1,000 population. Our property was just outside of town, and two years later, we built a house there, moved in, and lived there for almost 30 years. Even before we left San Jose, I drove to Koufax to meet with the building inspector, Bob Carton. He had previously worked for the city of San Diego, and he knew all about light pollution. When I asked him if something could be put into place in Colfax, he said he had already done that. I was impressed. The lighting restrictions prevented lights from shining upward, required full cutoff shielding on light fixtures to prevent light from going upward and outward, and allowed only the amount of light necessary for any particular purpose. For years, that worked well. Shortly after the year 2000, someone who owned permits to build 10 billboards along the freeway about a half a mile from my house filed a lawsuit against the city saying their sign ordinance was too restrictive and did not allow proper advertising of businesses. The city council folded and settled with an agreement that one-half— That is, five billboards could be built along the freeway. And the lights on those billboards point upward. I later talked to the sign company, and at that time they said it would cost about $2,000 per sign to put the lights on the top pointed downward. I did not have the money, so the lights still point upward to the sky to this day. You can see them along Interstate 80 on the east side of the freeway in Koufax, California. Those billboards lit up my northwest sky. By the way, some of us appeared before the city council after the billboards were placed to try to get things changed. The city was sympathetic but could do nothing about it. My eastern and northern sky was still dark, and that's where I did most of my comet hunting. They do make light pollution filters designed to cut out the artificial light and allow a greater percentage of nighttime skylight. High contrast filters do that too. Many amateur astronomers flee the bright lights for dark skies for their astronomy endeavors. Commuting astronomers. I remember when I began comet hunting with a 4.25 inch or 10.5-centimeter reflector. And after 10 months, I had assembled a 10-inch, 25-centimeter reflector for comet hunting. I went from an instrument of a focal ratio F5 to F3.8. I was disappointed to see that I could not see extended objects as well with the larger scope as I did with the smaller scope. Well, it was the focal ratio, I was gathering more light with a larger scope, but also gathering more of the light-polluted sky, reducing contrast. Only when I packed my telescope in the car and drove a few miles out of town where it was darker did I begin to pick up fainter objects. In the early 1980s, I came to realize that about half of all comet hunters were commuting to dark sites, Despite what your light pollution conditions are, don't give up. Try observing and see what you can see. Imaging with a CCD or CMOS can often penetrate the light-polluted skies and bring in some fine images. Often, many images are stacked on top of each other to increase contrast and reduce noise. Planetary observing and double star and variable star work can often be done under light-polluted skies. Or, you can try what I did. Living in San Jose in the mid-1980s, I wondered if I could ever do some comet hunting from home. I usually commuted 40 minutes to Loma Prieta in the Santa Cruz Mountains. But, what could I do from light-polluted San Jose? I set up my 10-inch, 25-centimeter F3.8 reflector on a transit mount that I had constructed. It would sweep overhead along the central meridian, north and south, with an adjustment screw to vary it a bit in right ascension in case I needed to track an object for a few minutes. I then used a Barlow lens to double the focal ratio of the telescope And then I put a blanket over my head to keep out stray light, in addition to an eye patch. The result? I picked up galaxies of 12th magnitude easily, which is very faint, but I always had to stay at least 90 degrees from the sun because I was sweeping overhead. How do we measure light pollution? A very popular scale is the Bortle scale developed by comet observer and variable star observer John Bordel. There are nine levels, from 1, which is very dark, to 9, which is inner city and very light polluted. Colfax, California, where I used to live, was about a 4, and I did discover 8 comets from that location. The area I live in now is a 3. It would be a 2. But the lights from the copper mine in Baghdad, 22 miles to my south-southeast, produce a light dome which bumps me up a notch. One common way to measure light pollution is go out and see what you can see, or better yet, send hundreds of people out to see what they can see. The problem with this is that people vary in how well they can see in the dark. The most accurate way is to use a light meter. They sell some designated for measuring low light levels in the night sky. Once again, the International Dark Sky Organization, the website is www.darksky.org. It's a great group for resources and you can join them and help curb light pollution. Next week, I will discuss star charts and how to use them. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? Find all of the planets, observe the light pollution around you, and if you are in the right part of the world, see an eclipse. Maybe Santa will give the elves a day off. You have been listening to Looking Up with Dawn, podcast episode number 74, for June 2nd, 2021. I'm Don Mockels. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmocholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N, M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com. Once again, that's dontheastronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will learn how to use star charts to find our way around the sky, all that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.